Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Chris Slowly. And me, Alex Steger. So here we are, last one of the series. We've got a good guest, behavioural economist and fund selector, and now CIO of Fundhouse, Joe Wiggins. We're speaking to him just in time. And also, right? And author, that's what I was going to say, because his book, The Intelligent Fund Investor, actually came out last week as you're listening to this. Practical Steps for Better Results in Active and Passive Funds. So what did you make of Joe, Alex? We are fresh off the call with him. Yeah, I mean, look, we couldn't really ask for uh, a guest whose interest and specialism are more aligned to this podcast. He literally picks funds for a living. He's done it for a very long time. He's just written a book about how to do it, but you know, through the lens of sort of behavior and investing. And effectively, I think the tagline or something from his book, Chris, that you quoted to him is, you know, good investing is about avoiding mistakes, which is sort of also what this podcast is about. So um, if there's a Venn diagram, it's sort of just one big circle almost. This is a gesture of a circle there for the for the listener. You won't you won't see it. But, but if if you know what a circle looks like, imagine that and you've got the gist of what I just did. Well it is the last in our series or season to use the Americanism. We are also joined for the last time this season by your friend of mine, Jamie Catherwood of Investor Amnesia. So here is Jamie with his final missive for this run. This is Henry Mark's gold swindle. During a London-based mania for South African gold mines in 1887, Henry Marks, managing editor of the Financial News, wanted to make some cash quickly. His novel idea was launching a fraudulent gold mining company to lure in innocent and gullible investors. Marks purchased a defunct farm in Transvaal, a former province of South Africa, and floated shares of the Ray Transvaal Gold Mining Company. Given his role as managing editor of the Financial News, Henry Marx made sure that the paper enthusiastically hyped up his company and included persuasive articles aimed at convincing readers to invest. Articles stated that the company was likely to prove a great speculation. Going one step further, Marx enlisted his brother-in-law and mistress to submit countless fake purchase applications to feign demand. Marx also ran fake high subscription premiums in his paper to further convey the sense of demand and excitement for his company. Accordingly, the Ray Transvaal Gold Mining Company became an actively traded stock and enabled Marx to dump out his shares on gullible investors at a profit. Of course, the company itself never produced any gold and was finally liquidated in May of 1888, just a year after being formed and launched. While Marx obtained his profits, the company's shareholders and creditors lost everything they put in. Amazingly, Marx was never prosecuted for his blatant financial fraud. However, the lesson served as a useful reminder that investors can't believe everything they read. So there was Jamie. So we've covered a huge amount of ground with Jamie this year. Private islands, treasure hunts, rubber plants. Samurai bunnies. Yeah, the, the gamut. It really makes 2020 look like, uh, like, like child's play. You know, like GameStop and stuff was nothing compared to what we've seen in history. So well, it could have got weirder is the, is the lesson I've taken away from this. Yeah, you're right. We got off relatively lightly. But that was Jamie. So there, you can go back through and listen to all of those. They were, uh, like we said, covering a massive array of interesting things and interesting traps that people fall into, which in my local DJ way is a lovely segue into the traps that people fall into from a behavioral economist point of view. So here's Joe Wiggins. Well, thanks for joining us, Joe. So, I mean, you've made our job slightly easy because I I guess having read your book, it's largely a book version of mistakes were made by somebody who knows what they're talking about. (laughs) As As if to say, we don't know what we're talking about. I mean, that is... The people we talk to know what they're talking about. Now we've got somebody who's who's written the actual book on it. So there's one bit that really stood out for me. In one of the pages, there's a quote that says... 
Good investing is often framed as the avoidance of mistakes, which I think is a, an, also a coda for this podcast. We, we tend to get to the, the crux of that. How true is that? How much do, because you put it as a sort of, as a philosophical argument, do you think that good investing is the avoidance of mistakes? I think it is. And, and one of the reasons I, I wrote the book was because fund investing is such an incredibly difficult decision-making problem. So all the features of a decision that make it really difficult are in play when we're investing in funds. So we have a huge array of choice. Um, we're not really sure what the most important criteria is. Um, we tend to focus on the wrong criteria, so past performance above anything else. And there's so much noise distracting us and leading us into, into poor choices and, and mistakes. So if you want an easy decision, you want a narrow range of options, you don't want any noise around the decision and you want to know clearly what the most important factors are. And in fund investing, none of those things are in place. So we are we are prone and very likely to make consistent mistakes. And if we do that, that's that's the main route we have to delivering outcomes which are which are disappointing and not meeting whatever objectives we might have. With that, I think one of the things that really stood out for me as a sort of a, co a way that people can counter that is diversification. Is not leaving yourself too open to one challenge. Is there a mistake in that though? Can you be too broad? I think so, but I think if you if you're going to go wrong in, in in one of those ways if it's a binary option of being too diversified or or um, under diversified or too concentrated i think being over diversified is the safer route to go down and i think we tend to consider diversification in in slightly the wrong way or maybe just a, a too narrow way so we think about it as managing our managing our risk and controlling volatility or however we might want to think about risk but really diversification is about us not knowing the future and being uncertain about the future, which is the right the right way to be. So if we could accurately predict the future, if we had a crystal ball, we'd only invest in, in one security because we'd know what the best performing security would be. Because we don't, because there's a range of possible outcomes in the future um, that we can't predict in advance, then we need to be diversified. And you only need to look at 2022. And I can imagine the, um, the, the annual year-end forecast for the year ahead from this from the sell side and from the research houses for 2022 coming into so for 2022 being written late in 2021 um and being totally upended by uh, unexpected events that change everything um yet we'll get, still get the forecast for 2023 despite the ones that were written for 2022 being mainly useless because markets are very very uncertain so that's why it's it's so important to to be diversified so Jude. Point taken around to how difficult it is to you know pick a fund for for, for so many of the reasons you said, um, and yet if I have this right, uh, you, professionally that's sort of to some degree what you've done for for, for a living. So uh, to cut to the chase, you know, and we ask this to everyone, so we're not picking on you, but you know, um, what are the mistakes you've you failed to avoid when doing that yourself? Yeah, how long have we got on the podcast? Um, well, we could put so, more time on the clock. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> So I think that, I mean, personally, a couple of things um, spring to mind, one more recent and one uh, some time ago. So I remember in 2009, my, my memory is a little bit hazy, probably because I've tried to, to block it out um, of my mind. But probably January 2009, I remember I was working at an as an investment manager for a, for a wealth management firm running portfolios. I remember selling out of um, a high-yield bond fund, an actively managed high-yield bond fund, um, when spreads were who knows how high, like 1500 over something, something even higher than that, because 
it was the end of the world and it was going to be disastrous and we wanted to invest in something safer and more conservative um which we did and then which was incredibly costly uh, given how high spreads were at the time and how high returns were subsequent to, to that point it wasn't quite um uh, bottom tick in the market but it wasn't far off and i think that the mistake there was not thinking enough about the broad lessons of history and the broad lessons of history is when asset class valuations are incredibly cheap when spreads are incredibly wide if you have a long-term view then it's a good time to invest and thinking too much and get about the moment about the specifics of any given case and particularly when it's times of stress when you're under when you're in periods of stress in markets and in life generally your time horizon just contracts dramatically so you might have a 10-year 15-year 20-year investment horizon but when you're under stress in 2008 2009 or in covid in 2020 when markets are moving dramatically um, and there's lots of apocalyptic talk about what's happening your time horizon becomes the next five minutes the next 10 minutes so it becomes really hard to make good long-term decisions so the, the, the investment decisions i think that tend to be the most painful and costly are those that make us feel good at the time we do them so we make us feel good in the moment but we repent at leisure so anything that makes you feel happy or comfortable when you're doing it as an investor is often uh, the wrong thing to be doing um more recent mistake um which is a mistake of process. It might be a mistake of outcome, um, but I can let you know on that. But this was about a personal investment issue um, where I was transferring. I had a few pensions from different employers, um, which I transferred all into one place to stop it being so so messy. So they were mainly invested in, in equity funds because I've got 20 years or so to retirement. Um, so invested entirely in equities, but because they were being transferred across, they all came across in cash. Now, I have no ability whatsoever to predict what stock markets are going to do over the next three months, six months or a year. I don't think anyone does. Um, but still, when it, the rational thing for me to do was absolutely just to put them back with the new provider in exactly the same state they were in with the, with the disparate group of um, providers they were with before. But I had this overwhelming urge not to do it because well, inflation's high, valuations are expensive, we're going into a recession, I'd be mad to put it all in now, maybe I should wait for a better time to invest, which is totally, totally ridiculous because I'm only in that position because I transferred some pensions and was carrying out some administration. So despite me um, studying behavioural finance for some time and being quite aware of many of the pitfalls, I still felt the same emotions. Still thought, I still, still felt the same, the market. Yeah, still felt the same urge of why are you doing this now? And I still had that the devil on my shoulders telling me that oh, there'll be a better time to invest soon. So it's just really hard to you can't even if you're aware of these behavioural issues, you, you you can't just pull yourself away from a knowledge of them is not enough to stop you making those types of mistakes. Knowledge is not enough is quite a big statement. <laughs> One thing you talk yeah. about in the book a lot, Joe, and I think it is linked to this because it, it follows the sort of dopamine hit, the feeling good element storytelling and the aspects of storytelling you're quite critical or, or analytical of thematics the the rise and fall have you had any past experience with thematic funds and can you expand on why you don't think they work yeah i think the, the problem with thematic funds um is that like humans are storytelling creatures we love telling stories we communicate by stories we want we want cause and effect they make things exciting and interesting and explainable um so we're drawn towards stories which makes it immediately dangerous from a from an investment perspective um and i think thematic funds tend to arise when an area of the market is generated exceptionally strong performance and then 
a narrative is created as to why that performance has been generated. And that creates a, a virtuous circle that performance is strong. Therefore, the narrative must be true and the narrative true is true. Therefore, performance must continue to be strong. So you get into this virtuous circle where because we're so focused on past performance, we, we, we get taken in by that by that story and we, we forget about the complexities of that story. Um, so you tend to people tend it tends to launch into the market when it's got very high valuations, when performance is very, very strong. And the odds of investing in any fund after its performance has been spectacularly strong and its valuations are very high is very low. So it, it leaves investors taking a very low odds bet, typically with thematic funds. And what we see from the research is the back testing is incredibly strong. Uh, and it launches and it might not fall off a cliff. It might it might persist for a little while, but in the end, the returns tend to be tend to be disappointing. And it comes back again to the earlier conversation about concentration as well. Thematic funds tend to be under diversified, tuned into a particular theme uh, and a compelling theme that feels right at the time. So it, they really do um, prey on some of our most um, most questionable and problematic behavioural foibles in that fascination with fast performance, the, the desire for excitement, the, the desire for making money quickly. And when you're in the when you're in the eye of the storm with a thematic fund. Um, it's really hard to resist because lots of other people are making money from it. It's all over the papers. The story seems inevitable. And it's just over time, they don't tend to, to play out particularly well. Um, and they just feel like funds that have got inbuilt marketing. They're like a marketing scheme wrapped in a fund because the story is the, is the marketing for the fund. Yeah, there's a guy, um, Ben Johnson, who does the ETF research for, for Morningstar here in the US. He sort of described them as a, a, a trifecta bet because you're sort of betting on this. You're betting on leaving aside the, the marketing stuff, which I, which I will come back to because I'm interested on that. Um, you're betting on this theme being a, being a real thing. Um, you are then betting that the manager is actually going to exploit that theme through, through the stocks that they've picked and then that they've got some sort of skill beyond just identifying stocks that match the theme. So you're sort of uh, even more complicated than a It's, than, it's, than incredi- I mean, it's incredibly heroic expectations that they, they come off. And I think one of the issues is that there is an assumption that if the story is true, then you will make money out of it. That is not the case. Often, Very often the story is true, but you still lose a lot of money from investing in those themes because the story is in the price. And it also makes them, it simplifies things dramatically. So incredibly complex things get simplified into, I remember with the, the BRIC story, the BRIC fund story that I mentioned in the book around China and the fervor for China in particular. I, a lot of narratives with fund managers I met at the time were, for company investments were there's a lot of people in China. And now that was it. There's a lot of people in well, China. Factually, factually accurate, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's true. Actually, but... So it's true. So we can sell a lot of X in China because there's a lot of people there. So, you, so when someone believes a story, then you can really simplify it down to uh, quite a meaning, <laughs> meaningless but true comment. So for, absolutely. So to, to your point, though, about, you know, it's almost marketing, you know, the marketing's inbuilt. Uh, etc uh, you know there's been a huge proliferation of let, let's stick on thematics for a moment of those types of funds over the last few years and um maybe given some of the themes they exploited and tech and disruption and things we're seeing um the the thesis that that was a bad idea kind of <laughs> burn out a little quicker than normal even yeah. uh, that perhaps has been the case but a lot of people should know better, right? Like you, you talk to those managers about bricks. They're probably quite clever people. They've probably seen things come and go before, and yet they were still sort of happy to get on board with that narrative. I mean, you've identified this. I'm sure the people in these organizations often have too. So I suppose what I'm building to here is should 
asset management be, be behaving better here, if given that they sort of kind of know all of this? I think the answer is yes to that. I mean, there's clearly lots of evidence around the dangers of thematic funds. Um, so they should definitely come with a with a health warning about the about the general lessons of thematic funds. But obviously, the, the argument is that every theme is different. There's always a new secular secular trend to, to latch onto. So this is not like the the last theme that we've been talking about. And the problem is that we all learn the wrong lessons from thematic funds. The lessons we learn are that that particular theme didn't work and was broken and was problematic. We don't learn that thematic funds in general were a problem. We just learned that the brick story or the high growth tech story were wrong, not that themes in in general were problematic. So we tend to learn the wrong lesson, which is the mistake is about the general, not the specific, and we get it the other way around. Are there any themes at the moment, Joe, that you really dislike? Are you on that? <laughs> well, all, all of them, I think. The whole all point themes. is it's not just the theme, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I find it difficult to, to pick them out, but I would say it's, a, it's really easy um, for me, but it's really easy to be critical of themes and thematic funds. But when you're in the midst of it, it's so hard not to get drawn in because it's so compelling and so persuasive and particularly for professional investors because if you're on the other side of that and everyone's outperforming and generating stellar returns and you're sitting there saying this is nonsense the multiples ridiculous this can't go on and it does go on get yeah, when you're when you're justifying that on a quarterly basis or a half yearly basis and you're under huge performance pressure that um, the incentive to capitulate becomes pretty high but what, I think for the, thematic funds, is there a place for them? Some of them will work, but they should be a tiny part of your portfolio. And they should be, I guess, what you might think of as sin funds, where you want to sin a little in your portfolio with something a bit exciting, but you don't expect it to work. But um, but maybe it will. And it's really, I just think of them as they're just price momentum strategies cloaked in a story. So it's a price momentum strategy. So that does work through time, as long as you know when to get out and to size it appropriately. I think the problem with compelling stories is if it keeps working, you just end up investing everything in that story and then it ends particularly badly in most cases. We touched for a moment there on incentives. Um, you know, obviously people do continue to launch these funds and the incentive there is basically, you know, the narrative is compelling. They can gather assets and, you know, the way that most firms work, you know, they make more money if they have more assets. Do you have a view on how, I suppose not firms as a whole, but certainly how perhaps portfolio managers should be incentivized so that their interests are better aligned? with investors and also what are the kind of the key mistakes that you see currently in the market with regards to that? Well, I see a belief, uh, quite common belief that performance fees align investors and fund managers, which I don't agree with at all in the vast majority of cases. So what I often see, particularly in the hedge fund world, is you'll have a performance fee structure where a hedge fund will generate really strong returns for one, two or three years. And each of those years, they'll make millions of pounds in, in profits. And then the fourth year, they'll lose it all because it was on some singular bet, maybe a theme that then um, doesn't work out. So over the piece, the investors are left with poor returns and returns that are worse than a probably low cost tracker fund. But they paid out millions of pounds in performance fees, which they don't claw back because you can't really claw back in a, in a mutual fund structure in any reasonable way. So I just think the alignment problem is made worse by most performance fee structures because it's horribly asymmetric. It's all upside for the fund manager involved and no clawback for the uh, for the investor. So I, I would like to see fees for active funds be lower. Anyway, I think the, the general aggregate underperformance of active funds can be addressed significantly by fees being lower. Um, but I'd also like to see um, just steps taken, imaginative, inventive steps taken to change how funds 
charge and how they incentivize good behaviors from investors. So I'd like to see funds apply caps on the total amount of dollar revenues they will charge. So there's no incentive to grow above a certain size. So we'll launch a fund and say, we'll, we'll take no more than X million pound in fees from this fund, irrespective of the size. So there's no incentive to grow it to 25 billion pounds because your, your fee level is, is capped. I'd like to see some kind of declining fee levels for investors if they hold for the long term. So how do you incentivize long-term investing, perhaps by cutting fees through time? I think we often hear that these things are just too complex, but I'm sure it's within the gift uh, of, 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 of technology now to, to do those types of things. But I was going to say, Joe, I mean, from my side, I'm trying to think of what the reverse argument would be. And there's, I'm going to do this, it's this time of year, Turkey's voting for Christmas. This idea of people want, not wanting to be the first one to do it, because if you put in caps on your incentives, your good managers will go to the shop next door that's not doing that. And so there is a, still that retention need as well. But like you said, it's exceptionally complex. But if if the industry was able to move in lockstep, would that be a good thing for you, do you think, as somebody buying these funds, to see that sort of cross-the-board attempt to align shareholder interest? Yeah, I think so. No, I think that active managers are under so much pressure anyway from the movement to passive that I mean, people need to do something to, to address that. And the easiest way to do it is through changing fees and changing the incentive structure for for managers and I think managers could still be incredibly well remunerated despite putting a cap on fees just slightly less well remunerated but hopefully generating stronger returns through time because they're not running as much in terms of in terms of assets as well so I think there are and what about we've, we've touched on this before in the podcast we've had diverse and uh, frank views on, um, on on skin in the game should one guy told us that it was overrated and Rajiv Jain told us that that opinion was total bullshit and it was very important to ask him in the game because he has a lot of it so uh what is what are, what are your views joe do you know when you've been picking managers do you want to see them with uh, a decent amount of investment in their in their fund and a broader strategy or you know stock in the firm that, that they work for or does that not factor too highly into your um selection process I think with all, as with many things in society today, that having very strong binary views on it's probably the wrong in either direction. I think it, it depends. So a couple of things I would say on that one is that we generally think of a sound investment or diversification principle as not being too, not having your career too intertwined with your investments. So don't work for a company and have all of your stock, own all of your portfolio in their stock. So generally speaking, you wouldn't necessarily want an investor to have their career tied up to with all their net worth as well. So maybe growth investors should invest in a value fund in their pension just in case growth investing doesn't work out very well. So there is there is some arguments to where skin in the game might not be such a great thing. Uh, but generally speaking, I want to see um, a fund manager investing in their in their fund. Although I do have experience of where that doesn't work out so well. So I remember um, a situation some time ago where uh, one of the primary rationale given as to why the team I was working on was supportive of a particular fund. It was quite a niche fund was because that manager had invested quite a lot of their own net worth into this niche strategy or invested a significant amount of money into this niche strategy. The niche strategy didn't work out very well, despite the manager having skin in the game. And that was because well, one of the reasons why the skin in the game didn't work well there was because the manager allocated a decent amount of money, but it was money that they could afford to lose on a niche strategy. So they allocated a lot in dollar terms to that strategy, but wasn't a huge amount to them. Um, so sometimes it's not a vindication of, of what they're doing. And um, also fund managers, sometimes you might notice 
quite hubristic, quite egotistical. What? Them, so them, them banging all of their money into their strategy is not necessarily a fantastic sign that good things will come. So I think it really depends on the on the situation. We're sticking, we're sticking with this then for managers who, you know, as you say, can be, you know, a little, a little egotistical. How much does how much does personality matter when you're when you're meeting? Again, we've had different views on this, and you know, as to whether the manager meeting is that important, and whether you can glean any insights into how they all run a fund based on uh, their personality or how they behave in in the meeting and things. What do you, do you have a particular thought on that? Well, I've heard a lot of nonsense in my career, and one one of the prime um, pieces of nonsense that I hear is this idea that, well, fund managers, active fund managers need to be arrogant because they need to have con- anti-consensus views, which is just utterly ridiculous. I mean, if you're a good fund manager, you're wrong a lot. You've got to be humble. You've got to learn. You cannot be hubristic. Every ca- every case of fund managers blowing up is to do with people with unchecked egos making um very poor decisions because of that ego hubris and overconfidence um so i think anyone that, that, anyone spring to mind i can't think of anyone uh, off the top of my head uh, <laughs> i don't want to go to court um <laughs> but it's just, in the us it's so hard to get sued honestly you can say whatever you like <laughs> but me yeah for me personality in terms of humility and hubris is when you're operating in a in an incredibly difficult job where your success rate is low even if you're good at it the idea that you can be supremely arrogant and take very high conviction views, probably not listen to dissenting voices. And that can be a good thing. It's just absolute nonsense to me. I think humility is really important. That doesn't mean you can't be confident in your views, but it means you want to listen to other people and also are unaware of the very difficult and highly uncertain job you're doing. Well, Joe, I was going to ask that because in the age of storytellers, how do you check for that? As somebody who who's done due diligence, a lot of manager research, is there a, a, a quick shorthand for showing that, look, this guy's not confident, he's arrogant? Um, I think generally if you looking at the behaviour in the portfolio, so you, a, you can look at the, the types of decisions they make in the portfolio, but also asking them about situations they've experienced in the past when things have gone wrong, how they attribute the, the nature of that mistake, how they've learned from that mistake. I mean, there's so much, one thing I find interesting about fund management at the moment uh, and this is it's probably a bit analogous to what's going on in football in terms of data over the last 10 20 years any excuse to get this pod onto sport we'll take so it the, no, like the, no. use of, the use of sophisticated data analytics in football so things like the xg statistics so people can better understand what effective behavior is in a game of football that data is all there for fund managers to look at now in terms of the types of decisions that they make when they make mistakes what types of mistakes they make and i don't think that many people actually use it because it's quite hard to hard to listen to it. So what you want to see as a manager is aware of the times that they are. They're aware of their own fallibility. They've made adjustments because of that. And it, not surprisingly, often you ask managers about mistakes and they'll give an answer that is total flannel or they just won't be able to answer it at all because it's just not something that... Because if you're, if you're so confident, I think if you're arrogant, it's really hard to think about your own mistakes in any any reasonable way. So do you... To- Going back to the, the the point on sort of actually meeting managers again, so we had um, our first ever guest on this, a guy called Daniel Crosby, who's also a, a sort of behavioural uh, economist, I suppose, in books, and he, admittedly from sort of, I suppose, one step removed, uh, 
poo-pooed the idea of, of a manager meeting or, or this idea that, you know, seeing the whites of their eyes could tell you something. He's like, humans are very bad at reading other humans, you know, and to some of the points we've already made, you know, picking a fund's already difficult. Why add this sort of um, other element on top of it, you know, into your decision-making thing uh, process? Uh, I'm not asking you to pick a fight with him. He's a lovely guy. You're a lovely guy and behavioral economists should never have fights. But um, what, yeah, the value as someone who you know does pick managers and meets them and stuff, do, do, do you find value in those meetings? No, I like, I like Daniel. I'm quite sympathetic to his view as well. So I think they're, they're, they're valuable in some ways, but also hugely overrated and they do lead to some quite poor decisions. So the most dangerous thing for any fund investor is a charismatic manager who's also lucky. And the times in my career when I've seen a manager present or been to a meeting and the the feedback has been, well, that's a good presentation or that's a or that's a good meeting. And there's this um, false analogy between someone being able to present or tell a good story and also being a good investor. I'm not sure there's any link between those two things at all. So really, it depends on why you're having the meeting and what you're talking about in the meeting. So from my perspective, all, all I'm ever interested in when I'm meeting a manager the main thing I'm interested in when I'm meeting a manager is evidencing skill. So you want data, you want information, and you want to talk to the people about that data and information to try and understand whether they have skill. I don't particularly want them to tell me stories about the stocks that they've invested in or about the or pontificating on the macro environment. So uh, I think you need to do it slightly differently than probably the typical way of doing it. But it does our susceptibility to storing, our susceptibility to, cap- to captivating people does leave us quite vulnerable in, in manager meetings. Um, and there's probably some great fund managers out there who are um, introverts, not great presenters, who just haven't developed a good career because they haven't been able to go out there and, and sell themselves in that way. We're trying to get to the, the crux of, well, what do you look for? And you mentioned that you want stats, but one thing you, you also rallied against in the book is past performance. It's, it's another sort of misguided indicator. You make the great example of if you picked a fund against your nine-year-old daughter, you've got a, a slightly better than 50% chance of getting it right just because of the randomness involved. So if you don't look at past performance and then go back to the start, it's hard to forecast properly what's going to happen next. How much does performance actually play into what you're doing? Um, so I think of three elements to to the, the job that an, an active fund investor has. So you, what you're trying to do is identify some skill or, or edge. And how do you do that? Well, there's three things that matter. One is beliefs so what's the what are the beliefs the manager or the team hold about markets or about how they assess markets and is, is that credible is that a reasonable way that you might be able to exploit an inefficiency or, or add value uh, and then you want a process so a set of um, decisions that are made a set of steps that are taken to make those beliefs into something real in terms of portfolio decisions and hopefully that will lead to to positive outcomes through time so the, th- the three things that I that I tend to care about I think the problem with with past performance is that actually even if you identify a manager with skill they've got incredibly strong past performance over the last three or five years incredibly high valuations in their portfolio then uh, it probably won't matter that you find a manager with skill because that that mean reversion pain trade will probably lose all your money anyway um so i, I really dislike the idea of filtering universes based on past performance i'd rather look at the bottom of the performance tables generally than the top of the performance tables um but quite hard to sell then isn't it not sell as in literally sell but to, to to get that argument across to say investors or you know anyone else in your in your team to be like well let's because i've heard people say this before you know yeah well yeah we'll, we'll we'll pick the guys at the bottom and and, and watch that mean reversion come in is is it an easy can you convince people to to go along with you on that no 
that's really different. I mean, the, the industry is obsessed with past performance. Uh, I mean, that just we just have to accept the fact that everyone cares about not just past performance, but short term performance as well. So everyone is just beguiled by what's happened over the last year, who's been doing well over the last four, three month periods. Um, so that it's really hard. But I guess what I would guard against, I know, I know we can't escape how important past performance is, but just avoiding extremes. If you're buying a manager who's generated extreme, like 10% annualized performance over three years, just don't do it. Don't, it's, it's not going to end well. It's just, just you've got to avoid those situations on the basis that even a good manager might annualize one or 2% excess returns. If you're buying one that's done 10% a year for three years and is all over, uh, all over the media, just, the odds are just not on your side on that trade at all. So just should, at least at least you, avoid the extremes. Should you watch out for sort of a CNBC ratio? Like if your manager is appearing on TV. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would be an incre- incredibly effective tool. Particularly like just pon- if they're a bottom-up stock selector pontificating on US inflation, then that's an absolute red flag. Given all this, Joe, and, and all these mistakes that one can make when picking active funds and all the sort of inherent problems in you know the way active funds are structured from their fees, from their marketing, et cetera, do you ever just go, oh, what am I doing? Like, you know, <laughs> just bang it all in a couple of Vanguard funds. And, and, and you know, because, you know, I mean, I wonder this and we, we, we write about it, but you, you have to select them and things. Do you, yeah, do, do, you, do you have sort of days of existential doubt? I have many, many days of existential doubt. Um, so a couple of things that I, I try and make myself feel better. One is I think passive investing is just a good thing for lots of people. So I'm not, I'm not one of these people who go out there and say you're mad to invest in a passive fund you're absolutely not most people it's a great option for them for the long term and the second thing is i just think active investing like markets are wildly inefficient that doesn't mean you shouldn't do passive but they are wildly inefficient there's no way that people are rationally pricing securities in any reasonable fashion and if people are going to do active investing which they will i'd like to help them do it better uh, and i think there are going to be lots of active investors around so if i can help them make better decisions when they do that, then hopefully I'll be doing some good. That's at least what I tell myself anyway. That was Joe Wiggins, our final guest for this run. So I thought he was fascinating. He covered a lot of ground. I mean, breaking down thematics to basically there's a lot of people in China really made me laugh. I thought that is a good summation of storytelling. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's so apt, isn't it? I mean, perhaps some of the wins come out of those sales this year, but, you know, 2020, 2021 was, you know, the, those years were absolute bonanzas for for, for, for thematic fund launches and, and, and asset gathering in that space. Uh, I know it's a slightly longer term trend in Europe, uh, but it's sort of you really, really caught fire in the US in those last few years. So I think having some of those warnings around, you know, it is really important and, and having someone put some historical context and going, look, we've seen this before and this is, this is what some of these things are based on, I think is massively valuable um, for investors, even if perhaps returns are doing some of the, the warning work for us this year. I was really worried you were going to start an inter-behavioural economist war then with your, your Daniel Crosby comments. He went very quiet just before he mentioned that and, and we got the, the same result, thankfully. Look, he was, he was very diplomatic, Joe, wasn't he? You know, he sort of said he don't have an opinion too far on, on one extreme or the other. But yeah, you know, obviously, look, I think he's familiar with Daniel's work. And, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's one thing for someone who just studies the theory to talk about that. But obviously, if you're in Joe's position, you're both looking at the behavioural arguments, but then also having to put this into practice, you know, there is an element of, okay, sure, these meetings can be a distraction. The cult of personality can be difficult. But, you know, hey, look, if you're going to pick a fund, you probably do need to actually meet that manager. You can't abandon that. So I thought... I don't think I was trying to start a war there, you know, uh, maybe oh, a, sort me, of wh- I think a white paper based spat, you know, over over a thousand words here, 2000 words back there, you know, it'd be, be, be a very sedate affair. 
I I also liked. I mean, we we've talked about this a lot, and me and you have met many many fund managers. His view of of the personality of a fund manager came up a lot, and I think there was a lot. I mean, again, I think I apologised internally about drawing this into an existential discussion. But his view of what what drives human behaviour I found fascinating and the fact that you don't have to be arrogant and outspoken. There's probably some very good, timid fund managers out there who just aren't on TV all the time. Absolutely. Look, as we as journalists are, you know, let's be honest, probably slightly part of that problem. You know, you, you want to go and interview those managers who are going to give you good quote, who are going to say something bombastic because you're going to get a better story out of it or a better podcast or a better TV segment if that's the medium you work in. So... Like, I'm 100% guilty of that because, I, you know, like that guy's boring. Go talk to the guy who's going to say something that he shouldn't. So last episode, Alex, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's your, your favourite guest from this run? Oh, look, they were all great is the first thing I would say. Such a um, political answer. Here is some recency bias for you, though. I think, you know, interviewing Howard Marks uh, a couple of weeks back was, uh, you know, really, really pretty interesting of having him live. Um and, and particularly, I think, as we said in that podcast, you know, uh, at this particular moment in markets, you know, as you know, he's identifying the cycle shifting, but as there really is some sort of big change with, you know, QE coming off, et cetera, et cetera, and markets turning pretty dramatically this year, you know, really great time to speak to someone like that. So uh, I'd probably hold that up as a highlight, but really and truly on a, on a personal level, I massively appreciate all the guests. Loved having Rajiv Jain on actually as well. He was fantastic. I thought really punchy, gave a great interview. Uh, Josh and Micah on the first episode um, and anyone else that I have forgotten you Chris I mean I've covered Personally, off half of no, them if you cover off the other half I've we're done we've here. said yeah. thanks to everyone well Desiree Fixler recently and, and she was great and yeah Hugh that was Young, and I was going to say Hugh Young mainly because in the same way that Joe Wiggins has written the book on this Hugh Young did a great quote that I think sums up what we're getting at with this where he said I can guarantee you one year of bad performance I just can't tell you which year it will be which I thought was a wonderful bit of self-awareness um yeah, well, I think that's it. I think that's that's us done for this run. It's us done for 2022. It is indeed. Um, yeah, just a quick thank you to all the listeners. Um, anyone who's listened to all of them, you're appreciated. Anyone who's listened to any of them, thank you very much indeed. I guess it's uh, goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Chris Slowly. <laughs>